Hey folks, just wanted to jump in real quick here before we get into the uh, meat of this episode and just put a shout out there to one of our sponsors for this episode and it is uh, three Blu-ray releases from our friends over at the Criterion Collection. Uh, If you've been listening to this podcast, you probably heard me talk a lot about the Criterion Collection. I'm sure you're familiar with them most likely. The releases we wanted to shout out on this episode from Criterion, uh, some of which are out, uh, actually all three of them are out now. And it is a finally, finally a Blu-ray release of Jean-Pierre Melville's uh, masterpiece, 1967 crime masterpiece, La Samurai, finally has a Blu-ray edition. If you've never seen this movie and you consider yourself a fan of crime cinema at all, you should be seeing this film. Absolutely. Um, and then, of course, there's a there's a film I have not seen, Terry Gilliam's Jabberwocky, which is one of his earlier films from 1977. Very curious to check that out. Last but certainly not least, you got to shout out uh, this wonderful new Blu-ray release for Election, the Alexander Payne film that they that they have put out now. So, um, an eclectic mix of films to recommend. That's what Criterion Collection does so well. So we appreciate their support of us here at Adjust Your Tracking. Now back to the show. Welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Van Oppen. Joe, I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best to not to not rant too hard here, but uh, I got I got I got an opinion. I got an opinion on something. You got a gripe? I got a gripe. I got a gripe. As you say, it's it's kind of my Andy Rooney moments where I, I let my voice be heard on something. But uh, you know, there's this movie coming out called Star Wars: The Last Jedi. I, th- I think we've all heard about this movie. I'm mm-hmm. I'm excited about it because. You know, Star Wars is still something that mean it matters to me. It's 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 it is that big franchise for me. You know, I I could care less about the Fast and the Furious, the Marvel movies, any of that shit. But Star Wars, I'm still there for. I'm still kind of mm-hmm. in the bag. Yeah. Um, and as a you know, as a film critic, I, I love. I feel privileged and love to be able to go see these new Star Wars movies in advance, and they've done that the last couple of years for us for uh, Force Awakens and Rogue One. And you really, you and I have talked off mic uh, about how sometimes these press screenings can be sort of like depressingly like dead, like nobody wants to react to movies, be it laughing. Yeah, it seems like a lack of real, like, where's the love, people? You and I sometimes wonder about that. But when, when you go to these Star Wars screenings, you actually feel everybody becoming kids again in a way that I think is actually a positive thing, you know, like... You can you can feel this the the enjoyment people were getting from those movies, and then yeah. this year they Disney has decided to uh-huh. um, I'm sure for good reason they're they're deciding not to screen the Last Jedi for us critics in Portland and basically all the other sort of smaller B or C level markets essentially the second tier markets. But they are, they've screened it now, and they will screen it tonight and the next night for like the New York and L.A. press, the Chicago press, the Seattle press. So mm-hmm. all of this is going to sound like a very privileged baby complaining that he doesn't get to see movies for free. But, but hey, that baby can talk. So, you know, that's- <laughs> so here I am. Exactly. But um, and I get why that's where people often go. It's like, oh, wow, wow, wow. You don't get to see, you have to go pay to see a movie. That's not the issue. The issue is like. It's weird to set precedents like this. And Disney is not even slowly. They are very rapidly becoming a monopoly on the big Hollywood studio movie business. Juggernaut. Yeah. They are also, all of this is going on. This, this complaint I have about not having a press screening for this movie. Um, besides the fact that not screening a movie in advance for critics in cities like Portland actually affects some people's jobs and actually they can't make money because they're not allowed to see the movie that everybody wants to know about and have a comment on it. It actually, you and I are lucky in a way as much as we'd love to be paid to be doing this stuff. We do this because this is like a hobby and a passion and something we love to do. So we're not really out that much other than just the experience and being a part of the conversation. But I think the real issue here is that like Disney doesn't consider that stuff. They don't, why should they care? Right. It's just more money to spend on marketing to do these screenings and sure they want to cut cost, but they are 
as you said, a juggernaut. And they are very close to purchasing Fox Studios. I'm sure you've you've read about this. Yeah. That's that's a dangerous thing if that happens, man. They will own many more big properties, including Avatar and and X-Men and all these other big properties where I'm sure a lot of movie lovers will rejoice for that possibility. But I think it's pretty safe to say that when a company grows to this size and is looking to expand and metastasize and get bigger and more bloated, they're yeah. going to wield more power in this way where they're just going to say, we don't care about you. You're too small. And my argument is that we do matter, actually. And it, it they should let it, it's it's a it's a dangerous precedent again. And it makes me a little worried because if Disney does, in fact, purchase Fox, um, I think that's that's a dangerous future we could be heading into. Yeah, well, <clears throat> it's also like it used to be that they would kind of pull press screenings when they didn't want bad word of mouth to leak right. about, about like a sort of uh, high profile film, a film that was expensive and they'd like want to at least like take their chances to make their money back before word of mouth kind of corrupts, you know, the film's chances. That's probably not the case with this movie Definitely. The movie probably you know uh successfully formulaic you know ryan johnson is a very capable filmmaker and mm-hmm. everything seems to be sort of on course to make the most like a uh, crowd pleasurable uh star wars package possible <laughs> and so it's just it's probably just fine um whether it's like su- superior or stellar who the fuck knows but it's, it's probably fine so they're not worried about it getting bad word of mouth but what they are doing, what the statement they're kind of sending is that like this, like not necessarily that these cities don't matter, but it's like we're not concerned with critics. And if like that becomes a precedent that's set where it's just like this does it like since there's so many people talking, you know, basically critics like it's become, you know, somewhat of a joke just with so many outlets available, so many people proliferating you know, so many ideas and voices competing all at once that it, like it, it essentially nullifies itself to to some extent. Right. And so like when media juggernauts are just essentially unstoppable, they can just decide like, ah, we don't care. We don't we don't care. Like the, mo- the movie's going to make it's going to shatter records. And that's uh, with or without you. So um, you'll pay to see it. So please do. And, you know, that's that is that does sort of like uh bring down the sort of the the importance of discourse you know about art and you know like i th- i think a movie like this is like the the level of escapism that people are sort of insistently clinging to anymore mm. speaks volumes of the kind of dire nosedive times we're in yeah and so it is important to sort of like investigate these things that we 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 cling to you know i'm i'm a little tired of uh the the juggernaut just because it's like that's all like that's the conversation like and once disney has monopolized nearly everything it's just like there's marvel there's there's star wars there's once they gobble up fox they'll have the simpsons x-men Die Hard, Predator, what, whatever, whatever else Fox was. Ford Fairlane, they'll have oh. the rights to Ford Fairlane. You're gonna get your reboot, Joe. <laughs> I know um, with Dane Cook. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, it's just like it's it's a weird it's a weird transitional period because it's just like I know that uh, uh, Disney is most likely they're they're in the process of they're gonna pull all their titles from Netflix yes. and then probably come up with their own streaming service which that further i've i've heard that their 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 focus is to not continue to fragment the streaming landscape but to like unify it i don't know how that's going to be possible if like every company then becomes their own streaming outlet then it's just like how how can you like you, how can you intersect all of those essentially you know um, and so like you have to have 14 different streaming services at the risk of sounding hysterically hyperbolic. I'm still going to say it. Uh, who, who's going to, how is this going to unify all this? It kind of sounds strangely, I don't know, 
pre-World War II Germany type discussion? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. I'm going uh, It's probably yeah, a bit you, far. Huh? I mean, there's plenty of other actual uh, materializations of pre-World War II Germany at right. the moment. I don't know that Disney is at the helm of it, but it <laughs> might not be wrong. Who knows? It's but, not the first association Disney's had with Nazism. Exactly. Yeah. You know, let the conspiracy theories fly. I say I'm not one to do that, but uh, what the fuck? Who cares? We're going to see this episode on Reddit any minute now. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, it's just it's a weird time. uh, And, you know, like, you know, with with the conversation just being dominated by films like this, um, it's it's weird to disregard critics in that sense, you know, and. Hey, Eric, I wasn't invited to the L.A. screening, so we're, we're all in it together. That's right, man. I'm sure we'll have an opinion on this movie. I, I will see it, and you know, maybe we'll get to it on the podcast if we feel like it, if we feel like there's anything worth actually bringing up that hasn't been you know, <laughs> screamed in praise by people, um, you know, maybe we'll find it. But uh, I, I think in the end, we got, we got plenty of good choices for us to, to get into, I think, though. So World War II, huh? Oh, uh, no, this is World War One. Huh. You have to be at least 80 years old to have known any of them. Huh. I've never even heard of the Battle of Piave. Battle of Piave is one of the most lethal battles in World War I. 170,000 people die. Is there anything you don't know? I know nothing, Oliver. Well, you seem to know more than anybody else around here. Well, if you only knew how little I know about the things that matter. What things that matter? You know what things. Why are you telling me this? Because I thought you should know. Because you thought I should know? Because I wanted you to know? Because I wanted you to know. Because I wanted you to know. Because I wanted you to know. It's been a pretty pretty solid year for films like pretty dynamic pretty like a lot of examples of like big movies being kind of rewarding and then little movies just as rewarding as they they typically are in terms of offering alternatives um agreed and hmm? agree it's a very good year yeah we're agreeing um (laughs) so it's also been a very uh heavy coming of age year because you know i think we're all we're, we're never not coming of age we're always coming of some age but i think the ones that like are the particular focal point are like adolescent stories you know movies like we've discussed ladybird on two episodes already and um a movie that you know came out in the spring and is is in danger of kind of getting overlooked that's now streaming on netflix not owned by disney either oh wait is no, it's not a, a Fox affiliate either. But um, it's not, yeah. Raw, which came out in the spring, that we we sort of screamed its praises about um, a young veterinarian school uh, freshman who undergoes a a hazing ritual. She's a vegan, and she tastes meat for the first time, and it starts this like weird transformation that like you know flirts with body horror and you know just becomes a strange sort of discovery movie it's about sisterhood and like mutating and just like this it's it's this crazy cocktail of a movie and um it it, it's streaming right now on netflix it's one of my favorite movies of the year and uh it's it's closing scene mirrors one of the closing scenes in our one of our main reviews today, uh, mm-hmm. call me by your name, where it's like a discussion between a parent and child. Yes. And it's one that reveals something that the parent has always known. And it's just like the, it's interesting how the, the two scenes kind of mirror each other in movies that are completely not alike, except in their coverage of people coming to terms with who they are deep down inside. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, so let's uh, let's let's maybe just uh, pivot to call me by your name. I'm with you, man. Um, first off, my my respect for your ability, Joe, to find connections in movies that have no relation to each other otherwise is astounding. <laughs> I'm in awe of you, my friend. Oh, uh, thanks. Because I loved Raw as well. I still I love this movie, and I'm glad it's on Netflix. I hope some people are willing to give this movie a shot because of course it was advertised to be a gross out movie and they really amped up the cannibal angle, but that is a movie with a lot going on <clears throat> and sure yeah. it delivers on those genre stuff, but give it a shot. People don't let that movie get buried. It's so easily watchable now that it's on Netflix, but I would have never, but as soon as you brought up the two scenes you're comparing in these movies, um, they, they are speaking to each other. There is a similar thing going on in the, in the movies in that way. Yeah. And um, yeah, this movie, so call me by your name has sort of had an interesting track to get to this point where it's about to come out. Um, it's, it's out in LA right now. Am I right? Correct. Okay. So it's there, it's coming to Portland here in a couple weeks. So it's essentially making its way to other cities. Um, this movie premiered at Sundance at the beginning of the year. And it was one of those that, got a lot of attention and for, for good reason, I think we'll get into why, but um, a lot of people went nuts for it at the festival and have been saying, this is going to be an Oscar movie at the end of the year. And yeah. you, typically I get a little bit, I'm just suspicious of that sort of like, it's sort of feeding the machinery before the fucking Oscar season has even started. It's just a little, that exhausts me in a way. Mm -hmm. um, especially when it's happening as the previous year's Oscar season is going, it's just like, can we just slow yeah. down? You know, right now that we, I've seen this movie. Um, I almost feel like I'm, uh, like I, I shouldn't, it, it, it's rewired my thinking in terms of just always keep an open mind because there is a very good reason people were saying that about this movie. It's because it's excellent. It, it, it's not that it was a shock to me that it was so good. It's just like, fuck, I felt like I already knew this movie already because I've been hearing about it for 11 months. But then I get to see it, and it's a reminder of like, if you just give a movie a chance, it can it can still surprise you even if you think you know it. And um, that's, that's I guess, where, I, where I'm starting with Call Me By Your Name is um, fairly blown away by this movie, enjoyed so much of it, and then the scene you referenced between the father and the son in the, in the story. Uh, and that included with like the last 20 minutes of the movie elevated to like next level. One of my favorites of the year as well. Um, so yeah, I'm a big fan of this movie, man. Um, what, what did you think? Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. Like y you mentioned feeling like you already know this movie, you, you know why people are sort of glomming onto it and they're going to celebrate it. Like there's, and I think people have a tendency in a sort of oversaturated media overload kind of landscape. They, they need reasons to dismiss and like reduce the amount that they're taking in. So like, nah, I don't, I don't, I don't need to see that. They need reasons to negate things. And like, just because they feel like everything is their, their entire attention is being infringed upon constantly. It's just under assault, you know? Yeah, so like Disney, people, yeah, exactly. It's the Disney, um, you know, mar marching step of fascism towards anyway. So, um, so like they just need reasons to, so you would look at a movie like this and be like, I get it. I know I already saw moonlight. I know a gay coming of age story when I see one and not to, you know, I'm not, I'm not like that, but I, I know this movie already. I know an award season coming of age, uh, you know, story. And then you're, but you're, there's a whole process of giving yourself over to a story of surrendering to it. And like this movie that takes place over the course of a summer in Italy, somewhere in Italy, as it says early on in the film, <laughs> that was a good touch um, in 1983. Like there is a whole just expansiveness that you, you give yourself over to. And in the, the sort of like, hyper accelerated era where like every our in our attention spans are just being like fragmented and assaulted at all times, you know, like to have to, to return to a sense. And I think a lot of coming of age stories are finding that it's crucial to go back in time. Uh, Marty McFly style <laughs> to a time when like 
your attention wasn't as aggressively split, you know? So like Lady Bird takes place in 2002 and 2003. There are cell phones in the movie, but they're not staring at them the entire time. And it hadn't like yet infiltrated to such an extent where everybody is staring at glowing screens most of the day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So like uh, call me by your name takes place in 1983 uh, in Italy over the course of a summer, as I said, and like, there's just such time space to like, and maybe that gives people anxiety to hear me say that. Like, I don't want time and space. Jesus Christ. There's enough to do, you know, like, so, <laughs> I don't want to be but alone like, with my thoughts. Yeah. What a, what a nightmare. <laughs> Fuck that. Um, but like to, to like, it, it essentially follows um, the introduction of uh, army hammers character, Oliver, who comes to stay with a family in Italy. And he is the, the apprentice to the father character who, or a teacher's aide of some sort, like he's, he's there to study and to support the, the professor, you know, character who's the the father in the family. And um and they have a son named Elio who's like this is like another fascinating thing about the movie is that he's a weird character, but it's a weirdness that is kind of unlike any uncomfortable teen you've experienced thus far because he's like he's weird but he's confident. Like he's comfortable in his like weirdness. It's not awkward per se. He's just sort of like distinctly sharply unique. And like, so you've got this like strong character. Do you, do you know the actor's name? Who yeah, plays Elio? I, I'll probably mispronounce, but Timothy Chalamet, interestingly enough, he's in Lady Bird as well. He's uh, the boy yeah. that she loses her virginity to. Yeah. He's, he's great in that. Mm-hmm. He just plays another, a different flavor of weirdo in that movie. <laughs> and, uh, he, uh, I don't want to spoil it, but he has two scenes that mirror each other in Lady Bird and in this one <laughs> that uh, just involve something unfortunate that people go through when they're young and um, they're experiencing sexuality for the first time. Mm-hmm. I'll leave it at that. Um, so <laughs> his character is just like, I don't know. There was just like a new, there was like a, a new approach to it. So even at a point where you're like, I know this movie already, you don't because like, here's like a a new approach to like these, these archetypes and these like characters and just the sense of, of space and time where people are trying to figure themselves out and they have like a whole kind of luxurious summer. And there was something kind of just like magical about the ease that the movie kind of goes along and that starts to pick up and accelerate as, you know, they have to make sense of what's essentially happening between these two characters, Oliver and Elio, who have this kind of like budding romance between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, as it sort of reaches the sort of bittersweet poignant end, like that's unlike anything I think we've seen thus far in a, in a coming of age story in a coming out story, you know? Definitely. And uh, yeah, there's just something that's kind of, it's a people were championing it, you know, maybe for, for reasons, you know, because it, it sort of holds an ideology that they want to continue to sort of reward in films, but it also because like it's, it's carving out a space that more and more is difficult to come by in this, like, you know, really hectic, overwhelmed age. And it also features uh, a psychedelic first song twice. That's yeah. like, I, I could stand to hear, in surround sound all the time. Love my way. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. You can bet that'll be at the top of this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Twice. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'll begin and end with it. Maybe. Um, yeah, man, I, uh, a few things come to mind from, from what you're saying, the, the idea that, um, this is the, the fact that the movie is set in 1983, it's a period piece has a real beautiful effect that for me doesn't become apparent until the credits have rolled and you're sort of sitting with the devastation of the moment of Elio's face. This movie has one of the most beautiful final long shots on a character's face um, since uh, good time actually, which you referenced when you saw the movie, but uh, you know, the, well that's the penultimate shot in good time, but Robert Pattinson's close up, or I always think of the like Michael Clayton shot, you know, where it's like long shot on him. Um, uh, Call Me By Your Name has a phenomenal one. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm getting off on a tangent. I apologize. But the period piece idea of this movie is really effective to me because it's really easy to think that like, um, as you grow up in the world, uh, as you come of age yourself in, in, in life, uh, as you get older, you, you, it can sometimes, and as you start to become awoken to like the way the world works, you know, like it can be kind of crushing and difficult, I think for all of us to accept that some things are just the way they are right now. And it sucks, but, um, it's a good reminder to see in artwork and stories and all these things that like people have been struggling with. Um, it, it's first, first off, call me by your name is not an issue movie. And that's the key. I think that's kind of yeah. what you were getting at. And it's cinema. It's just a great story that happens to be about these things about a 17 year old boy falling in love with uh, however old army is supposed to be probably in his mid twenties at this point in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it never is an issues movie. It's just telling the story in the best, most cinematic way possible. Um, but I also love that it's a reminder. It's it's uh, something I really loved about, like, say, a show like Mad Men. Is that show sort of took the veneer and shine off the the idea of that era of like America was so great back then, and and we were prosperous, and you know there were roles, gender role, like the, the sort of old fashioned thinking. It was bullshit because people, if you watch Mad Men, it points out like people have always been fucked up and they've done fucked up things. It's not like that was introduced in the nineties or the two thousands that people would betray each other or sneak around and cheat on their husband or wife or, you know, all these things. And call me by your name is just another reminder that like <laughs> gay people have existed on this planet since humans have existed. And like at this time it was a struggle even maybe even more so than it was, than it is now to just like be open about who you are and what you want in life. And that's such a deeply sad thing. But the other element of this movie that's so, so great and you just can't praise enough, I can't praise enough, is it's not a tragedy. It doesn't want you, it certainly wants you to have sympathy for the scenario and the characters, but it's not trying to milk your tears and make you feel bad about it. There's no tragedy at the end of this movie. There's no, um, a lot of queer cinema for decades has sort of always fallen into that trope. I think we are slowly breaking out of it, especially... Um, if you look at the more independent, the lesser seen, uh, queer cinema titles, they will certainly move past this, but in terms of stuff that's been accepted by the awards, uh, by Oscars and things like that. And by the at the box office, you think of like Brokeback Mountain or, uh, Moonlight's a good example, but Brokeback Mountain, as great as that film is, it's sort of a classic version of like, well, somebody dies at the end of this and isn't that terrible and sad. And it is, that movie's very well done, but it was. It felt like maybe that was that last gasp of a sort of traditional uh, structure or um, sort of traditional point to get to with with a queer love story. But Moonlight felt like last year. Moonlight felt like this real revelation in that way, uh, where it feels like it was setting you up for the first two thirds for a real wallop of a tragedy, and you were going to just have to sit there and accept it. And then the movie, at least in my case, surprised surprised me. And it leaps forward through time and they have, and suddenly these characters aren't falling them. It, it happened. They found the best dramatic way to close that movie out by dealing with it in a realistic way. Two people mm-hmm. just talking out what they needed to talk about. And um, that, that felt like this quiet revelation of like, wow, we're starting to see things actually develop in these kind of movies where they can just, they just need to be great movies. And I think call me by your name of course was in production being written was written before moonlight even came out, but it's a great sort of, it's another turn on that. It's another, it's another move forward in queer cinema, mostly because it's just a great fucking movie, you know? Yeah. It, it's interesting. Cause, um, Brett Snellis, whose podcast, you know, you and I both listened to, he, he addressed the sexuality in moonlight, how yes. it was, it's a, it's a very kind of, uh, chased uh, yeah chased it's a very prude movie and you know uh, ultimately it's a straight man's version of like a, a queer coming of age story and and in that sense it's sort of unrealistic in its depiction of sexuality and call me by your name is not and it's not it doesn't sensationalize it it doesn't overly romanticize it it is just like a pretty straight up depiction of lust and and like affection 
and it's it's yeah it's just a, a refreshing approach and that like the it doesn't take the Brokeback Mountain not that there are only two examples of of you know gay cinema and that's exactly. the only ones we can cite <laughs> both of which were directed by straight men but um <laughs> You know, Brokeback Mountain was it's an unrequited love story that just ends in like, you know, the impossibility of the situation. And that's a tragedy. But it's just like this is this takes on, you know, if there's any unrequited element to it, it's just the misfortune of like posturing of that time. And it it doesn't take the form of an antagonist of a person who's like insisting that like this love can't happen. And so the the only antagonistic force is just sort of in the ether of like how people kind of present themselves and how they posture themselves. Right. And and like that there's there's a certain kind of there's a there's a lingering sadness with that that, that it doesn't have a villain character that you can identify and therefore just like dismiss. It's just sort of out there and we have to come to terms with it. And there's 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 a beautiful sadness to the conclusion of the movie and a sort of a really beautiful melancholy that it, it sort of leaves you with and that the, not to give away anything that happens between the father and son in the speech, but like he just sort of gives you the keys to help understand like going forward with yeah. that sadness. Yeah. And we should say the, the father character is played by Michael Stuhlbarg who still for me continues to be like this deeply underrated actor. He is so great in everything I see him in, be it, you know, be it a TV show like Boardwalk Empire, where he was a very reoccurring character in that movie. And how different is that character from the father in Call Me By Your Name or the father in A Serious Man, you know, the Coen Brothers movie where I saw him for the first time. Um, he's, he's lights out. And that scene we keep referring to is just a masterpiece of a sequence of a contained thing in a film. It is so perfect and it could have been so deeply raw. M- mishandled it could have been so manipulative and wrong absolutely and it's not and it's a it's another it's sort of the final like period at the end of the sentence of this movie of just the reminder that like these are the my i think my favorite thing about call me by your name is that it's a movie about good people just trying to be good and trying to do the right thing and be decent and it doesn't feel cloying or fake or manipulative it actually feels realistic and i'm like because I think a lo- it's, I think it's safe to say that most people, when they go to the movies, want to see the best of humanity. You know, they don't want to see the fucked up shit that me and Joe, that you and I will sort of like, we're, that we also like. Like, we like all kinds of movies, but I get why most people want to be reminded of the good in the world. And what's amazing is that Call Me By Your Name does that, but it's actually still like really beautiful artistic cinema. It's like a really great movie that isn't cloying or uh, mishandled or manipulative. It is a beautiful piece of uh, something we've talked about in the past, but sensualist cinema. I think this is one of the, the really great examples of this year of what sensualist cinema is where it like, because it's set in this hot, beautiful summer in Italy, I think it's Northern Italy. The movie is just fun and, and enjoyable to luxuriate in because Mm -hmm. of the sights and sounds you feel sweaty as the sun is baking the characters in this movie. And so many sequences of just people talking are perfectly staged as they like suntan or as they eat fresh fruit picked off a tree. There's these things that the movie focuses on. And then the heightening of sound, um, there's great uses of music as we pointed out, but the sound too is very subtly, uh, layered and beautiful and it heightens those feelings those senses that like you feel like you're at that place in that time and um the movie does that so well which is something i i love if any movie can do that yeah just to carve out a space that you can you know that's it's a contemplative sort of emotional space where like that's possible and you're not it's not being nothing's being dictated to you and it's like so if you need a two-hour summer vacation where, you know, you, you, you come to terms with your own uh, inner coming of age, uh, you know, please, please check it out when it comes to your city. Totally. I, I think I think we should pivot to our next episode or our next movie. But I real quick, just it, you got it. We got to give a shout out to the director of this movie, uh, Luca Guad- Guadino. He's a, an Italian filmmaker. He he's certainly made some movies that have gotten 
my attention, but I've never totally fallen for. And they're um, the movies he's done with Tilda Swinton, I Am Love, and A Bigger Splash. I don't know if any of these are have you if you've seen or if they if you recall them. No, I haven't okay. seen A Bigger Splash either, which yeah. he made. They're both yeah, they're both like solid, and I love Tilda Swinton and a lot of the other actors in the movies, and they're very um, well crafted. But this movie is a little looser. And I think it's a better fit for him uh, in terms of what I like about him as a filmmaker. Um, yeah. And then, so, you know, this guy is a name you're probably going to hear now for a long time because I think he's really captured something beautiful with Call Me By Your Name. But uh, also worth noting, I, I, you, I bet you know this, Joe, but he's doing the Suspiria remake that's coming out, I think, next year. Did, did you know that? I didn't know that. So you remember, this brings us back to early days of AYT. You and I did an episode because at the time... This is like five years ago. It was reported that David Gordon Green was going to make yeah. Suspiria. You remember that? Yeah. Uh, it's just gone through so many different hands at this point, but someone is very determined to remake Suspiria. And now it is actually happening. That is the movie this director, Luca Guadagno, is like working on uh, huh. as we speak, which, yeah, I, I think your ha is understandable. And I am fascinated by this. This dude is probably going to be up for Oscars this year, this director. And what does he follow up with? A remake of Suspiria that I I am very intrigued by what that will be um especially cuz I just rewatched the original Suspiria and that movie does not lose its ability to put you in a hypnosis nightmare a hypnotic nightmare you know it's still so effective yeah. at what it does especially in a movie theater my god um so I already love Suspiria and I should be suspicious of this remake, but this guy doing it and in whatever scale he's clearly going to be able to make it in, like probably big scale, um, bring it on. I, I want to see that. Well, it's, it's much like Dennis Villeneuve, you know, being like when it was announced he was going to do Blade Runner, it was kind of like he yes. had earned enough credit and like he had sort of announced himself not like in, in his own kind of signature vision that wasn't derivative of other things necessarily, but he was, he had like earned his spot on his own. And then like, it was like, Oh, well, if anybody like he's, he's the guy that can kind of deliver it. And, you know, for someone who can sort of access the sensualism, the way this filmmaker can, yeah. Like he, if he can transition that same level of attentive focus, you know, on, on a sort of like luxurious summer to a more nightmarish sense of sensuality where it's like all, all of your senses are heightening into just a paranoid hellscape of, you know, shrieking, uh, <laughs> like the, the movies, like the original Suspiria is so fucking loud that, uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I'm really interested to see how this pans out. I, I hope he makes it a little quieter. I, I hope he does make it more sensualist, you know, because like as beautiful as the treble just a little bit, yeah. maybe <laughs> bring that treble down. <laughs> exactly, man. Um, I, I think he will do something different enough. Um, and the fact that he's an Italian filmmaker and he gets to carry the mantle for uh, a once at times great filmmaker like Dario Argento. I mean, you, it's hard to argue him as anybody worth seeing a new movie from these days, but uh, he had, he had his time and uh, I, it's just exciting to see this, uh, this uh, emerging filmmaker, Luca Guadagno to, to take it on. It sounds, it sounds crazy and I'm all for it. Yeah. All right, man. So why don't, uh, why don't we pivot to our other movie? Yeah, let's do it. America, they want someone to love, but they want someone to hate, and the haters always say, Tanya, tell the truth. such thing as truth i mean it's bullshit so the other one that we're going to talk about in this episode is uh, a film called i tanya it is not out yet even in your in your neck of the woods is that right oh no it is out oh man i know nothing anymore okay so it's it's Came out on friday okay so it's doing it there you go same idea it's it's in its slow re- release rollout uh mode right now uh so it's a movie you're gonna have to kind of track and pay attention to when it comes to your city 
Um, but if you live in a major city, it'll be coming eventually um, because it also is going to be in the Oscar conversation, I think. And um, maybe just as a, a place to launch off, it's certainly a movie that would have made a great added uh, conversation piece to last week's episode when we talked about the disaster artists and Jim and Andy, that documentary. And I, I, if I remember right, you were even pushing for us to, to bring it up in that episode. I just didn't get a chance to see it until a week later. But um, nonetheless, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna fit it into this episode because this is a fairly fascinating and uh, very also very cinematic, very stylish biopic, and I think it helps it rise above uh, the typical, uh, really sort of typical biopic movie that you and I tend to fall asleep to right away. So. Um, yeah. With that in mind, I think that's one that's one really exciting element of this movie. But there's certainly a lot else to uh, to to get into. Yeah, it's um, I wanted to sort of tie it into last week's films because like there's there's an element of uh, the way pop culture fixates on uh, the sort of the the fascinating catastrophe of Tommy Wiseau and the room and how to, how does a movie like this like come into being. And like just how like the 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 sort of like fixation people have <clears throat> with like anomalies and just weird like weirdos and how that like our, our our sense of sensationalism, you know, on a larger scale, like with the the Tanya Harding story, um, like how it is sort of in the early stages of true tabloid culture and our, our fascination with like trash and just like, and drama and like this, like this, this drama uh, like took place in the early nineties, like sort of early into the mid nineties of 94 is I think when the, the incident happened <laughs> as it's referred to in I, Tanya. Um, and so seeing just like culture, it, like learning the sort of like tabloid landscape, you know, there was plenty of tabloids that still existed, uh, you know, well before that. And, um, you know, gossipy shit had just, that's probably been around just as long, but like this, there, the news culture like was sort of in its infancy around that time. And like the movie, takes like what we know of that drama creates a character, just like an ensemble of like these weird oddball, almost caricature level characters and like just sets them loose into this like score and Scorsese's uh, often referred to in this movie. Cause it, it does have like a Goodfellas casino sense of momentum Definitely. and like just it's whirling through like all these like darkly comedic, vignettes and then it'll crash land you into dramatic moments that are truly startling and harrowing to get through. And ultimately it's a, it's a kind of like roller coaster ride. And I think the, the conceit of the movie is to, to turn it into that, to have it have the energy of the tabloid while still managing to like anchor it with emotional resonance and with genuine performances. Yeah. And uh, I think that's what the movie was. The script was originally a blacklist script. So it was like there was, there was obviously like a high wire act of like, here's this like trashy subject matter, but then offering this like dizzying cinematic treatment of it. And um, that was directed by Craig Gillespie, who's responsible for things I've liked, things I've liked quite a bit mm. and things I've hated. Um Lars and the Real Girl hate that movie. I've still never seen it, but I remember you saying <laughs> um, the Fright Night remake. I like a lot. Hmm. I think it, I think it's really like he handled that really capably. And so, yeah, this movie is just like I, I've seen it twice now, and it's like seeing it with a really rowdy, responsive audience, and seeing it with a tight, quiet audience the second time. It was just like it it didn't uh, diminish anything about the movie. In fact, it, it made it clearer how hard those moments landed. Yeah. Cause it was just like, it wasn't softened or muffled by people cheering from start to finish. It was just like the hard transitions of being like this, like 
not happy-go-lucky, but almost like manically propulsive narrative to just like a hard stop with like a movie that's largely about abuse, you know, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't shy away from that. Like it's, it's, it's a movie that really like takes a, a, just a, a hard, difficult to stare down, look at, at abuse and how that, like how that's just sort of like indoctrinated in our culture at large. Yeah. The movie portrays what, how that kind of typical, like this is straight up. You you're watching Tanya Harding's husband, Jeff Galuli beat the shit out of her in many scenes in the movie. And it's, it's a reminder that like, uh, this can become normal life for people like, uh, and, and, I hope I don't sound like insensitive as I refer to it like that, but it's like shocking if you've been lucky enough to live a good life with good parents or whatever, you know, that you've met someone that you want to live with and that you're happy together. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. This movie unflinchingly portrays it. And then also has this thing in its pocket that is another um, it's another connection. I think you were kind of making to the sort of X factor that Tommy Wiseau was when it comes to the room or making the disaster artists it's itself a sort of somewhat refreshing biopic is Tanya Harding as a character is that X factor for this movie where it's, it's the main thing and the performance by Margot Robbie also really helps. This is like, she's a firecracker. She's a character that you want to follow even though I bet a lot of us remember her and wrote her off as a way as trashy, like what you're you're saying, like uh, white trash, you know, that was sort of her rep in that world. And it was not fair because she's a person and you actually get to see that in this movie. But you also yeah. you also get to see that she what makes her um, what makes those really hard abuse scenes um what made it so I could actually keep going without being like looking away is that she is literally a fighter. She, yeah, I understand that this is not how it's normally going to go down when it comes to these, uh, violent scenarios, domestic abuse scenarios, but seeing her fight back or punch him in right back is just like, yeah, that's that character. She doesn't take shit from anybody. And that's what made her so interesting because here she was in the, some of the most, like um, upper class sport that exists right now in, in the world of figure skating, where it's more about presentation and falling in line and being a certain way. So the judges will even give you a shot. And yeah. then it's also really interesting that it is one of the only sports where there's no objective way to win in figure skating. Literally people right. stand by and give you a number and say how good or bad they thought you were. So um, that's kind of weird and then that adds to the drama of the Tanya Harding thing because she was the movie also conveys this very strongly. She was an amazing skater. She, yeah. she was the only one capable of doing a triple axel and you get to see these moments in the movie. And I was like, I remember that. I re- and I remember my mom who loved, loves figure skating talked about the triple axel all the fucking time. And this movie does a great job of bringing in an audience who will have no idea what any of that means and bringing them in so they understand it without being pedantic about it. It's just like it's all built into the, 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 the fucking the, the blood pumping through this movie's veins. It's a very alive movie in that way. And um, the fact that it kind of juggles all those pieces and also is able to go back and forth from perspectives, you know, like it's mostly Tanya telling her story, but it's also right. Jeff Galuli, her ex-husband, telling his version. Yeah. And the movie embraces those contradictions. And I think that speaks to your point of like, it's like we're seeing the tabloid process writ large in a movie form and it really works. Yeah. And it, it's like our sense of like reality television hadn't been like as aggressively implemented the same way cell phones hadn't been aggressively implemented in the movies we were referencing earlier. Yeah. Uh, So like the real world existed maybe a season of road rules was out, but like <laughs> by and large, you know, the, the template of uh, the, the 24 hour news cycle and reality television, like wasn't there yet, but like the, it, that was being serviced, like the, the service of that was being started and like seeing, like she was a fascinating kind of entry point into like a really American dynamic because you have someone, you have a, a sport that she is like, incredible at 
you know, and that, but it's a, it's a very postured, very like formal, uh, very elegant kind of uh, sport. Mm-hmm. And she had like a, a strength and a rough around the edges quality and just like a grit to her. That's got like a, you know, when people talk about how Americans posture themselves, a like grit is like one of those things that I think people cling to. And so she had this like tough pulling herself up survivor kind of rocky quality to her while in this like incredibly elegant art form of a sport, you know? And so like, she was this like perfect duality and then like add to that, like the, the controversy of like what she eventually kind of inadvertently gets involved with. And then you have like a sensation and you have like uh, something that people like clung to desperately as like this sensational news story before it was supplanted by the OJ Simpson yeah. murder and trial. He wasn't murdered. Somebody was murdered and he was implicated. Anyway, it, it's interesting that like that sense of kind of of removal from reality and that we stand judgmentally looking at this like sensational culture, like having that calcified into what it is now. There's something kind of fascinating about looking back t- 20 plus years to this period at its starting point. And um, oh, shit. What's the actor's name? Who is uh, Bob- Bobby Cannavale? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep plays a, a hard copy reporter in it. And he sort of addresses that very like specifically where he was like, I was on a shitty news show. Um, or at least everybody thought it was shitty until that's what all news became. You know, he's talking about like hard copy and that, like that, that tabloid culture that that was like the televised version of it. Mm-hmm. And just like seeing, you know, I, I feel like this is like, this is a weird kind of mirror to our, current out of control culture you know and mm. and to have like I, I i think the pitch of the movie is is really ambitious that it's like this fast-paced hyperkinetic look at like a trashy story that ends up humanizing everybody involved including alice and janney's uh performance as tanya harding's mother who's yeah. like just incredible and surely going to be a, a contender for best supporting actress. Mm-hmm. I feel like. definitely. I mean, uh, I, th- I think like she's getting a lot of attention and as is Margot Robbie, I think it's going to be the performances for this movie. That'll really elevate it. But that script too, as you've pointed out, you know, it's, it's doing things just the fact that they avoided pretty much all the traps of a biopic and were able to remind you of like, these can be good. These movies can be well done. You know, disaster artists, it's not like we thought that movie was perfect by any means, but like it as well, you know, it also is an example and, th- and that's really great. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. I also, um, gosh, just the, ah, man, the, the fact that it does humanize all these characters is kind of insane because I think it might be very easy for an audience as they get into Itania to think like, I know I thought like, Oh, come on. Was the mom this cartoonish? Like, was she like this? And then, yeah. Was the uh, bodyguard to Tanya Harding, uh, Sean, I think was his name, Sean Eckelhart or whatever. Um, uh, it was like best friends with Jeff Galuli when she was married to, to Jeff Galuli. I, I was like, could these people be this cartoonish? And then it becomes an example of something we make fun of usually in these movies is they show you video clips and photos of these people at the end. And yeah. it's actually a great argument for why you should do that in a biopic because I was like, oh my God. That it's a spot on impression of these people. I mean, it's really, it's, it's strong acting. I don't mean to slag it by saying it's an impression, but it's, it's exactly, we're basically seeing what we saw on the news just done in a movie. And, um, that was amazing, you know, cause I'll typically rip on a biopic for being like, Oh, here come, here comes the pictures of the people at the end. Yay. You know, but because yeah. this movie burrows further and tries to do more and I'd say mostly accomplishes it. Um, it's it's this sort of joyous like um, it also ends on a very I'd say perfect final shot for its story. Uh, I won't say what it is, uh, but it, it's a very nice closing moment. And I wondered like how is this movie going to end when you've got all this energy building up? And they found a good spot, and it and it held true to the movie's uh, tone and point of view. Um, so yeah, there, there's there's a lot to praise. I, I will say this: uh, if I'm going to knock anything on I Tanya, I 
And part of this might be because I wasn't lucky enough. I haven't gotten to see it in a theater. I had to watch it on my laptop, which is by no means the way to watch a movie. But uh, I would say mostly the movie still played well to me. And that's a that's a praise for the movie because I watched it on my computer. But yeah. I'm not sure if it, it felt a little long to me. Like I felt it sag a bit. And it's it's just at about two hours, I think. But um, there were moments mm-hmm. where I felt the movie dragging. I just am not sure if it's because I was watching it in that way, or I, so. I'm curious what you think because you saw it twice in a theater. Did did that? Did the pace ever slag for you or or slow down? I think it's it's got like an epic quality to it that may seem a little odd considering the subject matter. Like it's you know it's it's covering you know a good portion of a person's life. Yeah. But it also, you know, has a clip to it that may have benefited from being a little bit shorter. So it does have this like epic quality, but ultimately that can feel overlong. I felt like it was something that kind of was sort of perversely enjoyable about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I could. Yes. Um, it's really unfortunate that, uh, if you are to see it in the theater that you can't see it at the Lloyd Mall cinemas because those are gone now. Considering that <laughs> a scene takes place at the Lloyd Mall uh, ice rink. Oh yeah, yeah. Because uh, most of the story takes place in Portland, Oregon. It was not shot in Portland, Oregon, but that's okay because um, it still looks overcast enough to you know pass as <laughs> Oregon. But um, yeah, I think that I think that its placement, the script itself. Um, on the blacklist uh, there, I think that there's like, there's, there's a new kind of like hook. And um, you know, if you're, you're going to be mean, it's a gimmick of like taking these kind of fringe uh, characters and giving them a sort of biopic treatment. Like the, they're not the traditional focus of a biopic where it's like, you know, they, they're they're They've got the traditional kind of hero arc. Um there was a script that I think is getting made about from the perspective of Michael Jackson's monkey. Um, right. Yeah. (laughs) Stuff like that. Like, you know, Cato Kalen, the movie coming soon to a theater near you in 2019, like just stuff like that where it's like, but like taking that high wire act of like, how are they going to pull off this like compelling and emotionally resonant movie with such an unconventional, figure at the center of this biopic and i think the movie does pull it off and it is like it is a sort of like magic relationship between the writing and the acting and it's a strong ensemble and though it is like a little over long like the the sense of conventional uh like focal like focal points in the main characters is like we're living in a completely unconventional time right now where it's just like the people who are our leaders are like no one ever would have imagined them being our leaders. So it's just like, we need to look to stories that sort of upend our sense of expectations about where stories can and should go and just see, you know, like a movie like good time was like, you're essentially following the hero's journey of a psychopath. Yeah. And, um, and it's like it's not a safe, easy, or conventional journey the entire time, but I feel like it's a uniquely American one for this point in time. Yeah, no, I agree, man. I, I think because there's so much good in this story, the Tanya Harding story, there's just so much, you know, uh, there's just a lot of yeah. juicy material, you know. Like, I, I guess, um, I, I just got the sense that they didn't want to eliminate things because there was so much good and they pack it in. And yeah. I, I, yeah. And I kind of feel like a hack for even saying like, it's a little too long, but um, I'm curious to see it play on a second time because that might not be an issue. Also seen in a theater might really help that problem too. It's um, like the hometown audience too. Exactly. in Portland. Yeah. I actually didn't know that about her. I didn't remember that she was a, a, a an Oregonian. So we'll just bottom line, like, Tanya Harding could skate and like the sequences in this movie, though they are most likely digitally altered, like they are stunning and it concludes with the actual Tanya Harding in footage of her skating and she could fucking skate. And it's a, it's a, it's a wonder to behold. It is man. It is indeed. Yeah. I could do without some of the bad, uh, CGI grafting of, 
Margot Robbie's head on an actual figure skater's body. There's there's moments where she starts to do a really quick spin where it becomes like almost looking like a floating head effect. It's very strange. But, um, you know, the movie probably had a limited budget. I think they, they make these sequences work. As you said, they're filmed with such fluid, like, beauty to them um, that counters so well with her spirit as this as this rough around the edges fire uh, firecracker. So, yeah, man. Uh, Jesus, so many good movies this year, right? <laughs> yeah. It's refreshing. I mean, the world is a nightmare, but, you know, at least we have good movies to watch. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, I can't think of a better place to start wrapping up. What do you think? Yeah, sounds good. So just chill to the next episode. All right. So why don't we wrap up episode 161 of Adjust Your Tracking? Um, I guess I can close out by saying we found another odd connection between the two movies. Uh, as you pointed out, Craig Gillespie, director of Itania, made a horror remake in Friday uh-huh. and Luca Guadagnino has Suspiria. It's, it's crazy. The connections you can find sometimes yeah, if you tenuous, but connections nonetheless. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, with that, you can find all our episodes of adjuster tracking at the playlist.net. Click on the podcast tab. You'll find us there. You'll also find all our other shows, uh, that are part of the playlist podcast network. Um, we're all, all those shows are grouped together on the playlist podcast, iTunes feed, also, our Stitcher feed. You can find us on SoundCloud there. Uh, rate, review, follow. Do whatever you want to do to help spread the word if you're so inclined. Um, you can email us at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. But what about uh, Facebook and Twitter, Joe? Facebook, Adjust Your Tracking, uh, the podcast. We got a nice message this last week. So any, any, anything you want to you know, talk about, talk movies, tell us, tell us what, you're, what you're into. We appreciate it. And Twitter, at Adjust Your Track. And, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's that world. It's very true. We have been getting a few occasional, really nice messages from listeners and we don't have any expectations that that's something anyone would want to do. But the fact that anybody takes the time to just say, Hey, good job to us, um, means a lot. So, uh, of course we're, we're so thankful that anybody even finds us. Um, Mm -hmm. but nowhere near as thankful as I am just to get to talk with you, Joe. Thanks, Eric.